Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find our text on page 926. If you're using your own Bible, you'll find the book of Acts right after the four Gospels at the beginning of the New Testament. And if you're using your tablet or iPad or phone or whatever, just you're on your own. Just find Acts chapter 3. You know, um, I recall an experience uh, that I had uh, as I was kind of studying for this sermon this week, studying this passage, you know. A number of you are aware of the fact I've been to Rwanda on several different occasions. In fact, I'll be going back in February for my fourth time. And I've spent, I don't know, about eight weeks in countries at this point, with the longest being about five weeks in 2011. And I've had some incredible experiences there. You know, just just the, the sheer wonder of standing out on this game preserve that's literally just miles and miles and miles in every single direction, you know, 60, 70 miles, 80 miles along the, the east coast, the east uh, side of the, of the country of Rwanda, and standing on this huge plain and looking at daddy giraffe, mommy giraffe, and eight-day-old giraffe only like 50 yards away, and just looking at these creatures in just, just amazement, like they are ugly. But but they are also just captivating all at the same time, and 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 to see the sheer size of the things they weigh, you know, the the the, the male giraffes can weigh well over two thousand pounds. I mean, they're massive animals, and and think our God made those, you know. And times too, just where I've had just moments of just sheer just laughter and delight and joy, you know. When you know, I remember the the the, the last day after when we've been teaching these guys for for four four solid weeks, walking them through the New Testament, and we were dealing with the book of Revelation. Good luck with that between nine and noon in the morning, you know, through a translator, trying to get all that in. And at the in the middle of all of that, the fifty pound bags of rice started showing up, and they were bringing them into the teaching thing, and just the guys just broke out in applause, and just the the the, the sense of joy just to be there, to be a part of that, or or watching this guy. Polycarp, who was kind of like Theophil's vice president in the nation, helping to work with the churches. And Theophil's the guy that we worked through this network of about 55, 60 churches. And Polycarp is a guy that he was a police officer earlier, and he was beaten and left for dead three different times during the genocide. And he, and he just wouldn't die. Even now, he struggles from tremendous emphysema as a result of, of the beatings he took and the impact on his lungs and et cetera. And to see him dancing down the aisle when he got his new used suit that first week we were there. Remember, we took, some of you were here, remember, took suits. And, and just seeing the joy on his face. And I'm thinking to myself, he's just excited. I'm looking at him saying, that suit doesn't fit him very well. You know, but, you know, but still, he, just the feeling that came with that. But I got to tell you that probably the, Outside of the moments of being inside of the genocide memorials that are around the country, probably the most intense emotions I've had, and this has happened to me twice in the same place, same things, is kind of in the section of the city that's kind of like the financial district, which is basically just a series of places where you can change money, uh, you know, from from various currencies and into Rwandan francs or back and forth or borrow money for short periods and that kind of stuff, and and there's a few stores around there it's where we took the guys to get their eyes tested that needed some new glasses and things. And, and it's the only place in the city where I've ever had any beggars come up to me. And, and it's always young mothers dressed in old, beaten, torn, dirty clothes, carrying very small children. And they got their hands out. And they're always looking around because begging is illegal in Rwanda. And so they're looking out for the cops to be coming. And, 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 and the look of, of desperation that's on their faces as they reach their hand out. And, and I got to tell you, it made me feel extremely uncomfortable. Just, just overwhelmed, intimidated. You know, and, 
And maybe some of that is just because I, I you know, you just when you're confronted with that level of human need, it just seems to kind of roll over you like a huge wave that you just can't stop. And and you get and it's intimidating, and you just want to get away. You just want to climb back in the car and roll up the window and kind of look the other direction. And and yet, you know, that's their life. And and, and some of it may be with that, just just being confronted with with human need at that level just creates an uneasiness within you when you think about how much you you, you yourself and enjoy and are blessed with and. I think the other part of it is, as I've been thinking about it, is that, is that realizing that ultimately there wasn't anything I could really do to solve that problem. You know, even in those occasions, I'm, I literally had hundreds of dollars in my pockets. You know, most of it money given by people like you that were designated for particular purposes for us to use in Rwanda. So it wasn't just free to me to give away. But even if I had taken all the hundreds of dollars that I had in my pocket, it wasn't going to wipe out the poverty that was among these young women. And, and you just feel overwhelmed by the level of human need that you're confronted with. And you, and you sense your own helplessness to really change it. Our text talks about an experience like that today for Peter and John. And it shows how God used them in a very special way to meet human need, to overcome that sense of finiteness and helplessness, and to make a difference that lasts for all of eternity. And, and we're going to be able to learn some wonderful lessons from it this morning. And I, I want to invite you to just follow along in your Bibles as I read aloud to you. I'm going to interject a few comments as we go through the text, and then we'll quickly go through our what and so what kind of things that we do, and, and then um, we'll move on to serving the Lord out in the mission field that lies outside of these doors. And verse 1 begins, Now Peter and John were going up together to the temple complex at the hour of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Some of your Bibles say the ninth hour. The Jews started counting the clock, if you will, at 6 in the morning, so 3 in the afternoon is the ninth hour. And the, the ninth hour, or 3 in the afternoon, is the time of the evening sacrifice. And both the morning and the evening sacrifice had come to be times of prayer among the Jews. And it was time when the temple complex would have been the most populated. The largest crowds would have been there. And so one who, and we pick up in verse 2, because there was going to be such a large crowd, a man who was lame from his mother's womb. We know from chapter 4, verse 22, that he's over 40 years of age. So a man for who for over 40 years has not been able to walk was carried there and placed every day, every day, at the temple gate called Beautiful. So he could beg from those entering the temple complex. Now we don't know exactly where this gate is. There is no gate in, in other records that bears this name. Some scholars think it might have been the, one of the gates that led through the outside temple wall from the eastern side, but that was actually the area of the temple where the fewest amount of people entered because it was the steepest terrain to get in there, the most treacherous. There are others who believe, and, and I think they're correct, that this is one of the, known as the Bronze Gate, the Corinthian Gate, uh, which separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of Israel, where both male and female Jews would have been allowed to go. It's a massive gate made out of bronze. It didn't have any silver and gold on it like all the other ones because it was so beautiful. And the doors were humongous, so heavy that it took multiple men to be able to open and close them. So here's this guy who comes every single day. He sits in the mass of people at the most active times and his need still hasn't ever really been completely met and he begs day after day after day. And when he saw Peter, verse 3, and John about to enter the temple complex, he asked for help. And Peter, along with John, looked at him intently and said, look at us. So he turned to them expecting to get something from them. <laughs> Otherwise, this is, I'm going to get, this is my payday. But Peter said, I, I, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, 
He raised him up, and at once his feet and his ankles became strong. So he jumped up, stood, and, and he started to walk, and he, he entered the comp- temple complex with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple complex. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. You know, here was a guy who had never taken a step on his own in over 40 years of his life. He was also a guy who had never, ever stepped foot inside of the beautiful gate because lame people, people with defects, weren't allowed into the court of Israel. They couldn't go into the real place of worship. So here, for the first time in this guy's life, not only does he take a physical step, he gets to take a step close to God. When he, while he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, greatly amazed, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's Colonnade. It's kind of a portico area built over one of the original walls of, of Solomon on the east side of the temple. And when, when Peter saw this, he addressed the people. He says, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or godliness we made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. And you killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. And we are witnesses of this by faith in his name, by faith in his name. His name has made this man strong whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through him has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. And now, brothers, I know that you did it in ignorance, just as your leaders did. But what God predicted through the mouth of the prophets that his Messiah would suffer he is fulfilled in this way. Therefore, repent and turn back that your sins may be wiped out so that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And he may send Jesus, whom has been appointed Messiah for you. Heaven must welcome him until the time of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from the beginning. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him and everything he will say to you. And it will be that everyone who will not listen to that prophet will not, will be completely cut off from the people. In addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also announced these days, you are the sons, you're the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. When he said to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God has raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from his evil ways. Now, we're going to move quickly here. So there are actually a number of, of points or reasons why I think this text, this story is, God makes sure we know about it. He's is, is inspired Luke to tell us this story. But the, the, the number one thing that's laying out there is that even though Jesus is no longer physically present, he's still exercising his power in the world. That's what the story is all about. And even though Jesus is not physically present, he's not the one standing in the temple, he's not the one looking this guy in the eye, Jesus is the one who's still exercising his power. It's not because of Peter and John and how great they are. It's not because Peter and John are so godly that they have the power to do this, but it's because of the power of the name of Jesus that this guy's healed. Jesus is still exercised. Jesus healed hit lame people while he was on the planet. Guys who couldn't walk, he turned, allowed the pair. Remember the guy who got laid down through the roof? Is it, they ripped the guy's roof. They laid him down on a pallet down through the roof. And Jesus said, you know, rise up and take your pallet and go home. He, Jesus healed people, causing them to walk again. Now Jesus is doing that through Peter. 
In chapter 14, he's going to do it through Paul. God, even though Jesus isn't physically on the planet anymore, he's still exercising his power. You know, it's interesting, and I, I, I said this in the first service. You know, a lot of us, we'd like to be miracle workers. You know, there's a difference between the miracle workers in our culture and the miracle workers in the days of Jesus. In our, in our culture, the miracle workers, they get rich. The miracle workers in the days of Jesus, they went to jail and they got beat up. Chapter 4, Peter gets arrested because he healed this guy. Chapter 14, when Peter heals the guy, they get dragged in and they end up getting stoned. You know, it's, 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 but Jesus is exercising his power through the church, through the apostles, through the members, empowering witness among them. And he always exercises his power to draw attention to his name. It's not because Peter and John were so great, but it was by the name of Jesus. You know, it's interesting that, that I think one of the reasons why we struggle we don't see a lot of miracles among us today because we have made miracles about us. Now, if, you, if you're if you asking God to do a miracle in your life and you're saying, and God, when you do this miracle, I'm ready to go to Quincy Market day after day after day after day and stand up and say, this is what God did in my life. Maybe you'll see your miracle. But if you were asking God for a miracle so you won't have pain in your body anymore or you'll have more money in your bank account or whatever and it was just going to make your life more comfortable, I don't think you're going to see miracles because miracles are always about drawing attention to the Word of God, drawing attention to the Word who is Christ. The, the, the miracles in the New Testament, as you see them over and over again, are all about servicing the Word, confirming the Word, creating opportunities for the Word. And in those miracles, that power is experienced through faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Faith there is that this whole idea of trust. It's not like just believing facts like George Washington was our first president or something like that. It, it's about trusting. It's about basing your life on it. Like you come up to a crossroads, okay, I can either take this road or that road, and you believe this one's the better, so you trust in it, and you take that road, and there's no turning back. You trust. Now, I'm being quick and laying it on the line here, and, and so, but, you know, and I, and I see in this the, the fundamental place where most of us struggle on a daily basis. The biggest spiritual challenge that almost every single one of us faces is waking up in the morning and truly believing that living life God's way is the best way to live life. For the vast majority of us, the issues of faithfulness and sin and service and all that kind of stuff, it all comes back to the fact that we aren't convinced, we don't completely trust that doing life God's way is the best way. And it's by faith in the name of Christ, all that Christ is, that God, that Christ's way is the best way that we experience His power in our lives. So part of the what, the so what, the what from this text is that Jesus is still at work exercising His power through the church to glorify His name as people believe in it. You also see in this text that literally the heart of the gospel is proclaimed. You know, Peter and John weren't dummies. You know, they used a little strategy. When they show up at the temple to do this miracle is a time when it was going to be the busiest. God creates the opportunity. God works this miracle. It draws the crowd. Peter's about ready to, he, he, he seizes it. He says, man, I, I'm going to take advantage. He says, you know what? We didn't do this. Jesus did. And he, and he gets a chance to share the message. And, and, and there's a lot of wonderful things in this text about the gospel, about the gospel message. You know, certainly he, he, he makes the case that this is all as a result of what God had predicted and what God had preordained, what God had appointed to happen. This was all a fulfillment of prophecy. And he goes back and he points out that it started with Moses, but also Samuel and all the others, that this is the way God was going to work, bringing his Messiah to his people. 
But in the midst of all of that, and then, and then you see these, these names for Christ, and believe it or not, it's only here in chapter 4 that Jesus is actually, it's the only places in the New Testament where Jesus is called a servant. You know, he's called the righteous one and the holy one. There's some wonderful stuff about the gospel, but it all boils back to this statement in verse 15. And you killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead, and we are witness of these things. It, it comes back to the heart and soul of the gospel. The cross and the empty tomb. The bloody cross and the empty tomb. You know, and, and, and as he applies that message in verse 19, this is what he says to us. And, and he says, you know what? He said, the bloody cross provides freedom because it provides us freedom from our past because it gives us forgiveness of sins. He says, repent and believe so that your sins might be wiped away. It's like God comes in and here's the, our, our entire life is written out on the board and he just wipes it all clean and we get to start all over again. And then with the empty tomb, he opens up the doors for a brand new future. How, how does Peter call it here? He says, so that seasons of refreshing may come. And this is actually a reference to end times, to salvation times. He says, you know, repent and, and place your faith in Christ so that your past can be washed away and God can bring the future he's got designed for you, which is seasons of refreshing. But it demands a choice. And that choice is called here repentance. It calls us to change. The gospel always requires a decisive choice. You know, and we live in a time where we like to diversify, don't we? I mean, you go talk to your financial planner, what are they going to tell you to do? Diversify. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Diversify. You know, you don't want to be overly committed to one thing. And, and we, we love just to kind of keep our options open. And we're not great at narrowing in on making a single choice. You know, sometimes we hesitate even though the train wreck is coming. You know, one of the tragic experiences in our nation history was the, the hurricane that hit Galveston in 1900. Some of you know Galveston is the, is the southernmost city in the state of, of Texas. And, and it's actually like an island. It's, and in those days, it was connected by a single bridge to the, to the mainland of Texas. They knew a hurricane was coming and a warning had been sent out to the people of Galveston. So you need to evacuate. And they're looking out and the, the ocean is calm and the skies are clear and it's a beautiful day. Nobody leaves. The hurricane hits. 6,000 people die because they didn't heed the warning and make the choice. And Paul, Peter's looking these people in the eyes and, he, and he's saying, Jesus died for your sins. You need to make a choice. The heart of the gospel is proclaimed. So what's the, the so what for us? And again, I realize I'm moving very quickly, but just let me just point out a few truths to you today from this text. One of the things I want you to appreciate one of the things I want to appreciate is that when it comes to ministry in the name of Christ, ministry comes in all sizes because God cares about people. You remember what was happening in chapter 2? Peter's proclaiming a message and thousands of people, thousands of people are coming to know Christ. And then as the church goes on for months and months, every single day, literally people, just lots and lots and lots and lots of people are coming to know Christ. And here you have the two pinnacles of the church, Peter and John, and they're going to minister to one guy. One guy. Any of you guys saw that the movie uh, uh, Brother Where Art Thou? You remember that one? It's kind of a kinky movie, kind of. And and, it, and there's a scene in there with I think it's Big Pop Poppy Daniels. You know, he's running for governor of Louisiana. You know, and so they're at a radio station. You know, and there's a couple of guys coming out, and his nephew, who he thinks is stupid, or whatever, or his son, he thinks is stupid, is saying, "There's some people. Maybe we should campaign with it." And he slaps him upside the head. And says, "We're mass communicating here. You know, we're not paying attention to individual. We're mass communicating." You know, sometimes or another, we just have this impression that if it's bigger, it's important. If it's small, it's not. And when it comes to ministry in the name of Christ, it doesn't matter what size, because 
people matter to God. You know, whether you're standing up here like me on a Sunday morning and preaching to 150 or 300 people in a course of a Sunday morning, or whether you're standing in a pulpit teaching 10,000 people, or whether you're Billy Graham standing on a stage and preaching to hundreds of thousands of people and to millions of people around the world, or whether you're sitting at your office desk and praying with a guy who sits next to you. It's important. It's ministry. And, and, and when it comes to ministry in the name of Christ, size doesn't matter. And, and I gotta tell you, this is an area where the church struggles today. I mean, the Baptist Convention in New England just had their annual meeting and, and part of one of the presentations on, on Friday night, the statement was made was quote of somebody else. And it said that the, the Christian church in America today operates with a harvest culture, but with a seedless generation. We're trying to bring people into the kingdom, the harvest, but we've never gone out and seeded the generation with the good news of Jesus Christ. Just, just going out and, and caring for people, ministering to people, serving people, planting seeds. It's all about the intake. It's about the harvest. And we certainly need to be about that, but we've got to sow the seed. And, and, and every single one of us, Every single day, have some kind of an opportunity to make a kingdom difference in the life of somebody else. That just flows out of the understanding of the fact that God's at work and the Holy Spirit's in the world doing His thing. And it's, there's divine moments there for us every single day. People that we can look in the eye and say, look at us. And we have a chance to be able to be used of God. Ministry comes in all sizes because God cares about people. Second truth, ministry is never about what we don't have. Ministry is about what we've already experienced in Jesus Christ. <laughs> What's, this guy's asking for money. And the first thing Peter and John do is look him in the eye and say, we's broke. We don't have any money. So we can't help you. Bye. And off they go, right? Uh-uh. It's not about what they don't have. It's about what they do have. And, and, and sometimes we miss in this connection and that here they, they are used of God for his power to flow through them. And this man is strengthened and made well. You know what? That had already been their experience. Peter and John had already been strengthened by Christ. Just look at the <laughs> the, the pre-crucifixion and the post-Pentecost Peter and John. Look at the transformation. God, God had already changed them. He had strengthened them. He had made them perfectly well. He had made them into the instruments that he could use in this way. And they were just passing on what they had already experienced. It's interesting, back in, in the 1200s, there was a, a young man who was ordained as a priest, and his name was... Uh, John Duns Scotus. I believe I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. He, he became a, a, a theologian among the Franciscan orders and he actually was known for his, his really intricate theologies, you know, and, and et cetera. And his arguments were very complex and he came up with some really weird kind of conclusions as a result of that. And so as, as centuries went on, people began to refer to certain positions as people kind of had these intricate, kind of complicated, sometimes weird kind of ideas. They refer to them as Duns scholars. And from that we get the word Duns caps, actually. It's kind of, you know, being a Duns kind of idea. But the story is told about the time that this priest went to the Vatican in the middle of the 1200s. And, and he's walking through the Vatican with the Pope. And they come to the gold chamber. And the Pope, with, with really a sense of pride and delight in his eyes as they're walking through the gold chamber, he says to this young priest, he said, you see, the church no longer has to say, silver and gold have I none. And the young priest responded to the Pope by saying, but neither can the church say anymore, rise up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ. See, sometimes we're, 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 just, we're trying to give the world the wrong stuff. And we think that stuff matters, you know. I think the reason why the vast majority of us hesitate to get engaged in ministry 
It's because we, we just know deep down inside our experience of God isn't worth passing along to anybody else. And so we recoil. And, G- and Jesus is, God is eager to do incredible things in our lives through the power, through faith in the power of His name. And then all we have to do is give away what He's already done in us. One last point. We're going to conclude. When we minister in the power of the name of Christ, people will always receive more than they ask for. People will always receive more than they ask for. What did this guy want? He wanted a handout. Help me buy a pizza tonight. And I'll be back in the morning looking for my money for breakfast. And they reach out their hands and God's power flows through them. And he's made completely well. Not only physically healed, but re-entered into the body of Christ, ready to experience eternity with the Father. When you and I serve in the name of Jesus Christ and the power that is in the name of Christ, people will always receive more than they're asking for. There's a lot for us to think about in this text today, about how we engage the need of the world. Let's pray together. I want to just give you a moment to draw into focus in your own mind and heart the conversation, the question that you need to keep talking to God about as a result of this message today. In fact, that, you know, I, I'd love for you to just take it out, maybe write it on the bottom of your bulletin or whatever, but this is what I need to talk to God about as a result of what I've heard this morning. For some of you, you might be asking the question, have I really made the choice to repent and believe in the power that's in the name of Christ and experienced forgiveness and seasons of refreshing? For some of you need to have the conversation, have I really made that choice? Perhaps you need to ask God about the level of the experience that you've had with him. What is it that you have to pass along to others as a result of your experience with him? Or what ministry it is that God would have you engage in? Just define for yourself the conversation that you need to have with God as the week goes forward. Father, don't let that conversation end until we are completely well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.